You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to the Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting this week, and with me is Lynn Bonner, Will Doran, and Colin Campbell, all of the NNO. Uh, we've got uh, a full plate today. We'll have uh, some tape from the candidates for uh, state superintendent of schools. Uh, we'll talk about the presidential race, and we'll talk about uh, the uh, the Senate race and governor's race, and uh, we'll talk about the uh, federal indictment of a state lawmaker. Uh, first up, this is the week of the very first debate in the presidential race. Uh, Will, uh, you watched the debate and uh, also watched what people were saying on social media. Um, what uh, I, I take it that no one made any false statements during this <laughs> during this whole event. So, um, where did they uh, uh, where did they tell the truth, and and where did they uh, not so much? Right, right. Well, um, I guess the the probably the most uh, or really the only kind of North Carolina centric part of the debate was when they talked about the uh, you know the protests and the riots in Charlotte. Um, Clinton, you know, she made some statements about how she wanted to see. Uh, you know, improved uh, police training and, uh, you know, as ways to, to combat that. And she ended up saying that, um, I believe that uh, guns were responsible for killing more uh, young black men than the next, like, eight or nine causes combined. And PolitiFact looked into that, and that's actually true um, for people, I think it's, like, ages 15 to 24 or something like that. Um, so kind of, you know, making her pitch for, you know, better background checks and, you know, a little, little harsher gun control. Um, and then Trump went, uh, he took that and advocated for more law and order, um, not the TV show, but the philosophy (laughs) and, um, uh, basically was calling for, um, stop and frisk policies to be, you know, enacted, uh, more over the country to, you know, physically, uh, take guns from people. So they, they were both kind of in favor of some gun control on this. Um, but uh, that led to this one moment where Lester Holt cut in and told Trump that, uh, you know, stop and frisk had been ruled unconstitutional and Trump shot back. No, it hasn't. And so PolitiFact looked at that. And it turns out that they're actually both a little bit wrong. Um, stop and frisk is in theory allowed. Um, but the way that the New York police were doing it, which is the most high profile one, they were doing it unconstitutionally. And so it had to get stopped. Um, and actually crime has fallen in New York since they got rid of stop and frisk. So the data shows, you know, maybe not necessarily that led to a decrease in crime, but at least that it didn't really, (laughs) it wasn't preventing much crime. And, um, but yeah, other than that, there were a few other things, um, that, uh, PolitiFact have looked at, well, many things, but I'm just going to (laughs) read a few of them for, uh, for time's sake. Um, Trump was right. And something else that might, you know, uh, appeal to a lot of North Carolina voters here that, Clinton has had a lot of strong support in the past for trade deals. Um, Clinton has, you know, since walked those back, since they've become a little bit politically unpopular this election. Um, Trump is also uh, wrong that he has never called climate change a Chinese hoax. He did. (laughs) People were uh, retweeting the tweet where he did that. Yeah. uh, Right during the debate. Yeah. They, um, it it is kind of surprising. His, you know, his team hasn't really gone back and deleted some of his more controversial or famous tweets. Um, 
And so, you know, as as he was sitting there saying, "Hard, they, he's making new ones, <laughs> right? As, yeah. as we speak, he's he's just very prolific." <laughs> just last night, he was tweeting about sex tape. So. Yeah, that uh, you know, <laughs> that's a whole other issue. <laughs> but um, and then moving right along, uh, Clinton was right. She was talking in the debate about how uh, Trump had rooted for the housing crisis, and um, during the debate, uh, Trump. Uh, owned it. He didn't try and deny it. He said, yeah, it, w- it was a good business move for me. Um, so she was right on that. Um, she was wrong. However, um, she said that Trump has never paid federal taxes before. Obviously, it's a big issue that he has been refusing to release his more recent tax returns. But we do have five years of tax returns from him in the 70s, I think from some sort of investigation. Um, and in three of those five years, he did pay taxes. So um, <laughs> so sometimes he pays his taxes, sometimes not. And obviously we don't know anything, you know, for the the more recent decades. And the other but, two years he had, he claimed that he lost money instead of having income. Yeah. So yeah. he didn't, right. So that, that's just a quick highlight of some of the the truths and lies during the debate. There were obviously a lot more. <laughs> but uh, You were compiling some of the social media reaction from people in North Carolina, too. Um, what did people... Uh, uh, have to say after. During yeah, that. well, I, you know, I, it was pretty much the same as the national consensus. Um, a lot of Republicans were pretty happy with the way that Trump started out, but then kind of dismayed by the way that he sort of fell apart by the end of the debate and, you know, got caught up in, you know, some of the, the name calling and, you know, attacking Rosie O'Donnell and Miss America, which obviously is continued into, you know, the end of the week here. So I think a lot of people are kind of disappointed to see that, um, you know, on the Democratic side, I think people were, you know, fairly pleased with Clinton. You know, I don't know if anyone thought that, you know, she really, you know, hit a grand slam with it, but she did, you know, basically exactly what she was hoping to do, which I think, it, you know, is, uh, you know, get in Trump's head and, you know, cause him to to create some more controversies. Could you tell if there was a most tweeted about moment in the debate? I don't know. Honestly, it was moving so fast. Yeah. You know, normally, you know, my Twitter page, you know, I'll get a, you know, a few notifications a minute or not notifications, mm-hmm. but, you know, a few new tweets a minute. Yeah. But it was coming, you know, it was a so fast right. during the debate. It was really, yeah. I mean, really, it was all the most tweeted about. Right. Um, but I don't know if anyone else had... Yeah, so I think I saw, I mean, there was a, a spike around the time that stop and frisk got mentioned because, of, sort of, of course, a lot of people were, A, surprised to see that come up, and B, had strong opinions about it uh, one way or the other. Um, but then some of the other sort of, like, insulty-related moments or where there was a lot of interruptions uh, came out. There was a period where everyone wondered where Lester Holt went because he seemed to be absent from the moderator's chair for a, uh, a little bit there and wasn't keeping them on time. Um, but certainly, yeah, lot, lots of uh, tweetable moments and lots of snarky comments. Um, I will note among the uh, the reactions from legislators was my favorite was uh, Representative Chuck McGrady, who informed us he had decided not to watch the debate and was instead watching the movie Ghostbusters, which uh, I don't know. I feel like a number of moderate Republicans may have been opting for instead of seeing their their party's nominee. Ghostbusters watch party during the debate. Um, well, uh, Colin. Uh, Colin, uh, you went to uh, a visit from a presidential candidate this week. We had Hillary Clinton in town. Um, What did she have to say? Yeah, so uh, Hillary was here on Tuesday, so it was the day after the debate, her first uh, public appearance uh, since the debate. She kind of came in... 
uh, kind of swinging a little bit. Um, she clearly thought she had done well in the debate and was uh, was happy to to be on stage in front of a supportive crowd and, and be able to uh, remind the people listening of, of some of the things that, that Trump had said the night before that uh, are, are perceived by many to, to be gaffes, including the comment about uh, whether he paid taxes, the comment about uh, uh, the housing crisis and, and whether he had uh, stood, stood to benefit from that. Uh, she was very quick to to hammer him on that. Uh, one interesting thing that I noticed uh, in some of the coverage afterwards, apparently, uh, I saw this when I was there, was I was looking for Clinton's teleprompter and she didn't have one. Uh, I saw The Atlantic had reported that uh, as The Atlantic reporter shows up, uh, there's a guy packing up equipment into a car and uh, he asks for some help and it turns out it's the teleprompter guy. And so he's been booked for the day. Um, and then as, uh, as he arrives to set up his equipment, they're like, oh, we're not going to need you. The Secretary Clinton does not want to have a teleprompter today. So it, I, th- I think the event sort of showed off her confidence. Um, she's obviously trying to get involved in as many North Carolina issues as possible. So she, she made some comments about her opposition to House Bill 2, her opposition to the voter ID law, uh, which prompted, uh, I think, the McCrory campaign to issue its own rebuttal of Clinton's speech, which is always interesting when candidates in completely different races start to weigh in on each other um, in that. Um, I think it was about a crowd of 1,400 people. So they were at capacity at, uh, at Wake Tech's uh, gym south, just south of Raleigh. So much so that uh, when I arrived, uh, I almost didn't even get in. Uh, I think our intern who was coming in after me had to go into the overflow room that they had for about 200 people who who couldn't get into the uh, main facility just because the fire marshal had said, we have way too many people, we won't even let in any more reporters, which is unusual. So it's a sign that she's got a a pretty good amount of support here. I think it's also interesting that she's choosing to go more to the urban areas. You haven't seen Hillary Clinton out in the rural areas where we've seen Trump, places like Kenansville and Duplin County, where Trump had held his rally recently. Um, Clinton's events have all been pretty exclusively in the uh, Charlotte, uh, Raleigh, and and Triad areas. And I guess she's going to be back in Charlotte uh, in the next couple days, uh, potentially, to uh, sort of talk a little about the the protest and the, the police shooting down there. And I was just wondering, have we uh, have we heard any news on the Tim Kaine playing harmonica at Bluegrass Fest? Yeah, front? so that's the other uh, aspect of the presidential campaign in Raleigh. Uh, Tim Kaine, we've been informed, is coming to Raleigh. I think he was here Thursday. He's here today, Friday, and he'll be here again on, on Saturday uh, for his debate prep. He's got a, an attorney from D.C. who's uh, playing the role of Mike Pence, and they're getting him uh, ready to go for, for Tuesday night when he has the— um, debate up at uh, Longwood University in Farmville, Virginia. I was trying to figure out why Tim Kaine would, would be in Raleigh, and I couldn't get any answers out of the Clinton campaign. Um, my speculation was, well, you know, it's a city that's fairly close in proximity to Farmville, where the debate is. I think Farmville's about two and a half hours north of here, but it's not Richmond, where is its hometown. But there is one big event uh, that Tim Kaine might be interested in, in in Raleigh this week, and that's the uh, IBMA uh, Bluegrass Festival, which just conveniently coincides with the days that he's here. Um, and I, So I've, I've been told there may not be a public event that's advertised, but I would not be at all surprised if he does one of the uh, impromptu harmonica jams that he did in, in Asheville a couple uh, weeks ago. So if there's a, a group that's playing Wagon Wheel somewhere in either the Marriott or on Fayetteville Street this weekend, uh, I wouldn't be too surprised if uh, Tim Kaine just happens to, to pop up uh, probably with a group of uh, undercover Clinton campaign photographers trying to make a 
uh, viral video moment of some sort. Could be. Maybe we'll see Pence with a, uh, a washboard or some spoons. I don't know if he's musical or not. Yeah, um. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'd love to see them have like a musical face-off as part of the debate. That would, uh, it would make it a little more entertaining because I do think the vice presidential debate uh, next week is going to be a bit of a snoozer in comparison to uh, the presidential debate's fireworks. Oh, yeah. That's a high bar. Uh, and we've also had visits from uh, Eric Trump. Uh, yeah, I went to a Trump's shooting range in Fuquay, Verena, and was surprised to see a pig on a leash. And I've, I still don't know what the deal with the pig on the leash was, but it was, uh, it was an interesting no, that the story, story that we had. No, that story wanting to know the story of the pig uh, uh, in Fuquay. Um, and uh, we've had celebrities also coming to town for the Clinton campaign, right? Yeah, they had... Um, Forgive me, this, is, this has been my running joke on Twitter this week is that I have no clue who these people are. Uh, Sean Astin, who I'm told played Rudy and was also in Lord of the Rings, was in Fayetteville for an event for Clinton. And then uh, Thursday and Friday, uh, Bellamy Young, I believe, is from the show Scandal, and she was doing some events. Uh, hers is quirky because apparently uh, – I've never watched the show myself, but uh, apparently she plays a first lady who later goes on to run for president. So – Basically, she's playing a fictional version of Hillary Clinton and is now on the campaign trail for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, we have Scandals fans who want to address that. Yeah, want to uh, send me tweets uh, hating on my uh, feeble description of these shows <laughs> that I've never seen. I can't believe that you haven't seen uh, you know, Lord of the Rings. I think and, I did uh, see some of those movies, but it was so long ago that I don't remember the people in it. Yeah, yeah. well, the Republicans were calling out the Clinton campaign for having – uh, Rudy there and yeah, uh, suggesting that he was somewhat of a has been, but they're um, they're released it mentioned Lord of the Rings, which uh, from the Twitter reaction seemed to be the thing that most of my Twitter followers remember him from because that's a, a bit more recent than than Rudy. But uh, it's it's always entertaining to see the the spin room when it comes to celebrities' uh, acting careers. Um, one side's going to want to tout this person as a really important figure whose support is uh, clearly influential, and the other side wants to say, uh, this is a nobody, we shouldn't care. It's just another feeble attempt to attract millennials to a failing campaign or something to that effect. Yeah. Well, uh, enough on the presidential campaign trail. Uh, we'll see who else uh, comes to town in the next few days and weeks. Michelle Obama is coming Tuesday. Yes. Oh, yeah. We forgot yeah. about Michelle Obama coming Tuesday. Yeah, no details okay. yet yeah. on that, we but she will be in Raleigh doing. and Charlotte. So uh, stay tuned, and I'm sure we'll we'll have coverage of that next week. Yes. Um, in the uh, in the Senate uh, de- uh, campaign, uh, Colin, you wrote a story about Deborah Ross uh, and her time at the state chapter of the ACLU. Uh, the Republicans have been attacking her on what she did there back some 14 years ago uh, and uh, talking about her record on civil liberties. So uh, what, what, what have they been talking about and what does she have to say about what she accomplished at the ACLU? Yeah, so the, the big issue has been surrounding this whole issue of the sex offender registry. Back in the 90s when she was at the ACLU, uh, she uh, very publicly raised some questions about the plans for a new sex offender registry. She was concerned that if you put uh, the name of somebody in their address on a website and their victim was someone in the family, then do you by extension identify that victim? She was also concerned about uh, vigilanteism, that people would like seek out these people and try to harm them or something, and the ability to, I think, reintegrate into society was another uh, concern she had. Now, uh, 
that's been portrayed by the Republicans as her being opposed to a sex offender registry. So they've put out a number of ads on it. Uh, I think both the Burr campaign and some of the the outside Republican-related groups have have attacked her that with TV ads, several of which uh, started airing this week. Um, she says that, no, she's always supported a sex offender registry. She's merely raising concerns about potential unintended consequences. And uh, after she left the ACLU, she was a state legislator and, and during that time voted a number of times to uh, strengthen and, and add funding to the, the sex offender registry. So that's sort of uh, where that stands. I do get the sense from, from the ads that I'm seeing that this may be the uh, the key point of attack for Republicans and for the Burr campaign on Ross um, as the, the TV ad spending heats up in the, the next few weeks. So we're going to be hearing more and more about that. Uh, I know Ross has also sort of attacked Burr for uh, voting against, I think it was funding for sex offender registry at the national level. Uh, his campaign counters that those were giant spending bills and he was not voting specifically uh, on this one piece related to the sex offender registry. I think the bottom line is that um, neither of them are, you know, as pro-sex offender as uh, their opponents would, would like you to think. Um, but uh, Deborah Ross, of course, involved in a lot of other things at the, the ACLU. Uh, she was involved in some abortion issues, um, opposing a parental consent requirement for 16 and 17 year olds. Uh, she also did some things that are uh, perhaps a little less controversial, things like uh, requiring insurance companies uh, to cover birth control. Uh, that was something that was, uh, I think she partnered with some Republicans on. Uh, she's been involved with some free speech issues. She defended a kid whose mother, um, or I think grandmother, great-grandmother or something, the caretaker thought that uh, a school uniform would teach the kids uh, obedience in a way that would pave the way for the Antichrist and the rapture or something to that effect. Um, so he was trying to opt out of the school uniform policy on religious grounds. Uh, she's uh, and the ACLU stepped in to defend the kid and eventually won so that uh, this kid is no, was no longer required to, to wear a uniform and, and could therefore uh, be saved by grandma from the Antichrist should that ever happen. Um, so we have a ton of issues that she's worked on, and of course only a few of them are getting singled out for the uh, attack ad treatment. Um, she's actually had her own uh, counter-attack ad uh, on the sex offender issue that came out this week featuring the state senator from Charlotte uh, who had sponsored that bill who basically says the, the Burr campaign's claims are uh, completely wrong about her being opposed to the bill. Okay. And uh, in addition to your story on Ross, we also had a story from the D.C. Bureau uh, on Richard Burr. It took a look at his contributions from uh, the energy industry, especially uh, fossil fuel and, and nuclear um, companies. Uh, we reported that the uh, coal, oil, and natural gas industries, electric utilities, nuclear power, um, have given him about $1.7 million in campaign donations since he uh, since he's been in Congress since 1994 uh, and uh, took a look at some of the votes over those years. And, uh, and by and large, he's been supportive of, uh, of fossil fuel companies' agenda, although uh, his uh, folks will say that uh, uh, he's supportive of kind of an all-of-the-above energy policy. And he's in fact, also supported by um, one group that's uh, that's pro clean energy, uh, and wants politicians to uh, to focus on on climate change. Um, so uh, we'll uh, we'll continue to. Uh, we've also got a story coming Sunday on uh, Burr and uh, some of what he's done on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, so check that out. That's from our news partners at the Charlotte Observer, uh, but it'll be running in in the NNO as well. 
Um, what about in the governor's race? You talked a little bit about uh, Governor McCrory's reaction to uh, the Clinton rally, but Will, uh, you went and saw both candidates when they spoke uh, about issues facing uh, rural North Carolina. Uh, what did what did they have to say? Yeah, on Tuesday they were at the 2016 Rural Assembly, which I had to laugh was held at a hotel in Cary near RDU, just about the least rural place in North Carolina, Carolina that you can be. Um, but I guess it's central. And um, <laughs> uh, But yeah, they um, uh, both the governor's candidates did address the Rural Assembly. Um, uh, Burr and Ross also uh, were slated to address them. I had to, I had to leave before... Uh, before I heard either of their speeches, um, so I'm not sure what they said. Um, but uh, both Cooper and McCrory focused on um, education as a way of uh, trying to rehabilitate the state's workforce, address the skills gap that's led to some persistent unemployment, especially in the more rural areas where, you know, we had a lot of factories back even 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and, but those jobs have since left for a number of reasons, and, you know, trying to get the unemployed people there, the skills to, you know, compete for jobs in this current workforce. So um, Cooper uh, spoke first, and he focused on really um, K-12 education, which, you know, has been kind of a a big issue that he's been pushing in his campaign, and also community colleges. Um, He has a plan uh, to make community college tuition-free. Um, a, a lot of colleges actually have started doing that with some of their local high schools around the state, just kind of of their own accord. Um, but he wants to have a you know a, a statewide policy, which um, I believe is pretty similar to something that Bev Purdue pushed for as well, um, and obviously was never able to get that done uh, during her time as governor. Um, and then McCrory, on the other hand, uh, focused more on higher education. And uh, especially the the plan that will make three universities here uh, cap their tuition at $500 a semester starting, I believe it's in 2018. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that. But um, and he was uh, he was very excited about that, and um, you know talking about how that's going to you know really help rural rural communities both in eastern and western North Carolina. Um, you know with the student debt crisis, with, you know, the workforce thing. So they, they both have, you know, ideas on higher education um, and, you know, and trying to make it, you know, more affordable, more attainable. Um, they also talked to, well, the, the, the presenters at the assembly talked a lot about Medicaid um, and how they think that expanding Medicaid would have, uh, you know, be a huge boon for rural areas, which, uh, you know, tend to have more health issues than the suburban and the urban areas. Um, Cooper uh, slammed McCrory pretty hard on the decision uh, that North Carolina made not to accept the uh, Medicaid expansion. Um, He cited several Republican governors like John Kasich and Chris Christie, who did expand Medicaid and, you know, basically implied that uh, McCrory was bowing to political pressure. Um, McCrory didn't talk about it during his speech. I asked him about it afterwards, and he said essentially that um, since the expansion was a part of Obamacare, and he felt that Obamacare had been rolled out so disastrously that you know he didn't want to get North Carolina into that, and that he wouldn't know how much you know it could end up costing. So there's obviously a, a big political divide on that. Um, so those those are really the two two main issues, and I, I think a lot of rural communities will agree that education and health are probably you know two of their biggest concerns. 
Well, Lynn, there's one, at least one other thing we should uh, mention this week, and that's sure. that we had some news about uh, Senator Fletcher Hartzell. Yeah, the weekly uh, crime corner. Um, yeah, uh, Senator Hartzell, uh, Fletcher Hartzell of Concord, was um, indicted on 14 uh, counts, um, mail fraud, wire fraud, and money laundering in this uh, slow-rolling case of um, alleged misuse of campaign funds. Uh, we know from the uh, state investigation, he was also charged, uh, he's also uh, brought on state charges. We know from uh, the Board of Elections investigation that um, he was using money for uh, haircuts and shoe repairs and um, and, uh, and and other things, uh, lawn care and the like. Uh, there were also some additional details um, in uh, in the federal case that um, he uh, purchased some Jersey Boys tickets and said they were uh, for the purposes of therapy. Um, uh, haircuts and the explanation is that he, if he uh, were not in the legislature, he would grow his hair long uh, like a hippie, um, that he spent money on his granddaughter's birthday party and uh, on a trip to South Carolina for his wife's handbell uh, chorus. Um, and there was also uh, some... Um, information in the indictment that he tried to mislead state investigators uh, as they were looking into these into these issues. So um, Senator Hartzell has decided not to um, run for re-election. He is the longest serving uh, state senator, is not up on the ballot, uh, is still serving in the Senate and is scheduled to be in Raleigh next week. Uh, he's uh, chairman of several committees and um, one of them is, is meeting next week. So uh, we'll see if uh, he comes to Raleigh or uh, if he has a, a stand-in running the meeting. Has there been any talk about uh, people urging him to step down or uh, not, people? Uh, not that I know. I haven't seen any yeah. kind of um, any kind of um, talk about that um, in Raleigh. Of course, um, maybe they're just willing to. Um, allow this to run out because uh, his, his term is going to be over soon. Sure, sure. Okay. And I think he, he had said that uh, um, it was okay that he was using the money to go to some of these events uh, because there were constituents there, parties right. and such, because exactly. because he had constituents there and he was talking to them uh, right. uh, presumably about issues. Right. Um, okay. Well, um, we'll keep following uh, the Fletcher Hartzell case. Uh, and see what happens there. Uh, before we uh, take a break, and uh, I just want to tell you what's coming up, we've got uh, um, the, ca the candidates for superintendent of public instruction. And uh, this is June Atkinson, the, uh, of course, the incumbent superintendent, and Mark Johnson, her challenger. Uh, we talked to them a little bit about uh, a number of things, including uh, charter schools and uh, the vouchers or opportunity scholarships uh, and uh, teacher uh, professional development. Uh, one thing that I didn't 
have a chance to include in the in the recording, but I wanted to mention was that they uh, they talked a little bit about what the job of the superintendent should be because this is sort of a perennial issue that comes up all the time, which is um, should there even be an elected superintendent of public instruction, or would it make more sense for the governor to appoint this job uh, since people generally think of the governor as having a big hand in education policy and governors always want to be uh, the education governor or at least uh, uh, tout their their work on education. And, and Mark Johnson said, uh, yeah, he thinks uh, th- that ideally the superintendent should be appointed because uh, that would give uh, more accountability. Um, people electing a governor would know that uh, uh, would be able to hold the governor accountable for what happens in education if uh, he appointed him. He also raised the possibility that the State Board of Education um, could appoint uh, the, the superintendent. Um, and June Atkinson uh, said, uh, as I think she has in the past, that she's uh, neutral on this, on whether or not the, uh, the superintendent should be elected or appointed. She thinks that, uh, that voters should, should make that decision. Um, the uh, uh, they they have very different views on a whole bunch of issues, uh, including uh, these opportunity scholarships. Mark Johnson uh, is supportive of that uh, program, voucher program, and uh, June Atkinson uh, is is opposed uh, to at least to the way that the the program the voucher program has been been drawn up by the legislature currently. So uh, let's listen to a little bit of that as we go out, and then we'll be right back uh, to talk about who the headliner of the week should be. Stay with us. I'm June Atkinson, State Superintendent of Public Instruction. I believe that there has been much, much, too much emphasis on end-of-grade and end-of-course test. When you take a test, it really is a snapshot. A snapshot should not define a school should not um, determine uh, how, the, how the community views that school. And we also have to keep in mind that the General Assembly has required North Carolina to have end of grade and end of course test. What I have been do- doing over the past uh, few years is to try to move to a place where we have assessments embedded in the learning process, whereas we would no longer even talk about having one day a year where kids or students take tests. And I compare that to a video game. Our young people love, for the most part, love playing video games. Well, they don't get a grade, but they do get feedback about what is necessary to advance to the next level. And so I want to use that as a model in order to where we ultimately get to the place that we have assessments embedded or, yes, assessments embedded in the learning activities of, of the classroom. And we've started that journey, and it's a long journey. You mentioned professional development. Your opponent brought that up and was complaining that what professional development that there is from DPI. He's had bad reviews from teachers that he that they've said it's boring. Yeah. What what where do you think uh, the state does stand on on training? Well, what training there is. If my opponent had done his homework, then he would have looked at the State Board of Education strategic plan. And in the State Board of Education strategic plan, we have indicators where we ask our teachers attending any professional development in our state to rate that professional development. 
And one of our questions we ask is, did this professional development activity contribute positively to your improving your instructional practices? And if he had done his homework, he would have seen that 90, over the past three to four years, 93 to 95% of those attending professional development workshops sponsored by the department rated, agreed with that statement. So unfortunately, he may be using an, uh, one teacher who, would, who may say that. The other thing is that I believe he may be confused as to what professional development is provided by the Department of Public Instruction and another resource. The truth of the matter is that we have had zero dollars from the General Assembly to have a widespread professional development for our teachers. So I would just suggest, and my response is, he did not do his homework to look at the facts about professional development. All of our workshops that we have sponsored over the last couple of three years have been voluntary for teachers. So they come because they want to come and they want to improve their instructional practices. So I would have to ask him, where are those people that uh, which you have said uh, that they had fallen asleep in the meeting? And then I would ask, where is your evidence that that is actually a professional development activity sponsored by the Department of Public Instruction? I honor and value and respect a parent's decision to homeschool a child, to send a school, to send a child to a private school, but I believe that our current uh, voucher law has no accountability, and it does not require sufficient information given to parents who want data to make the decision. For example, the schools receive the private schools receiving taxpayers' dollars have to do some type of testing, but they choose the test. And if you don't have a certain enrollment, then you never have to report the results in the aggregate. There is no accountability to see how different student groups are doing. My name is Mark Johnson. I'm on the Winston-Salem Forsyth County Board of Education. Before that, I taught at West Charlotte High School. And I'm running for North Carolina Superintendent of Public Instruction because more of the same cannot be the only option for North Carolina's students and educators, and more of the same will not help improve public education. So I saw the challenges every day for these students coming from poverty and what that entails. Uh, not only just not knowing if you're going to have dinner when you go home that night, not only not eating breakfast unless you got it at school, but I had one student who didn't know where she was going to go home at night. She lived in a hotel, and night after night, it could be a different hotel. When you have those kind of challenges facing you, memorizing the rock cycle just doesn't seem that important. I've worked very hard, have a lot of uh, heartbreaking stories, but I have good stories, too. Um, one story that really resonates with me everywhere I go and everything I do is my 17-year-old ninth grader who came into class one day, and he usually is more interested in skipping or or being the class clown, and he looked around my class and saw every student engaged, silent reading exercise, 
uh, they were introducing themselves to the new material, and he waved me over and he said, "Mr. Johnson, I I want to I want to do it. Like you know, give me give me a book, give me the assignment. I want to take part in class." And I was hiding my excitement because it's a teacher's dream moment. Um, until five minutes later, he waved me over and he whispered uh, with a horrible look of defeat in his eyes, "Mr. Johnson, I can't read these words." And it just hit me like a ton of bricks that here's my 17-year-old ninth grader that I finally reached, finally motivated, and the status quo had already, had already failed him. And that moment still resonates with me because it's where I decided that after I taught and I went to law school and ended up in Winston-Salem, no matter what, I was going to do what I could to help impact the policy side of education because... You know, I, I saw more need for support for teachers in the classroom than what I was getting uh, as a teacher. And so I ran for school board in Forsyth County. I got to the school board. I rolled up my sleeves, started working with local leaders on how do we support teachers in these tough situations. Uh, started hearing all the complaints about testing. Uh, started hearing all the complaints about the lack of support. Um, heard time and time again, DPI, Department of Public Instruction, is broken. We, we, we tell them what we need. They say, yes, we're listening, but then nothing ever happens. The more I looked into it, the more I found example after example of this actually being the case. And that's when I decided to run for statewide office against the incumbent who has worked at DPI for over 40 years and who has been elected to lead DPI for the last 10. Just you know, on on the premise, the thirty thousand foot level is the status quo is not what it's going to take to improve education. It drains teacher morale. Uh, this is subjective, but this was not a uh, a Democratic teacher saying this to me. Uh, th- sorry, this was not a Republican teacher saying this to me. Uh, this was a teacher who's a Democrat on the campaign trail, telling me she went to a professional development opportunity put on by DPI, and it was so boring she wanted to pull her hair out, and. That's not helping treat teachers like professionals. You know, all this testing has just exploded over the past couple of years, and partly as a result of, you know, laws from General Assembly and Congress mandating, well, we have to have tests to know where students are. Yes, we have to. But the problem is those tests were decided to be at the end of the school year. So end of grade, end of course. We get – teachers have to – focus on those tests. They spend weeks at the end of the school year planning for the testing. Then they have to give up weeks of instructional time with the actual testing. Uh, I hear complaints from it all the time about teachers. Teachers also complain to the Department of Public Instruction because what's happened is it's at the end of the school year. We get those results back, but where are the students? They're at summer vacation. They, we can't use those results to then turn around and help students in the classroom with their learning. It's only a snapshot or, you know, more grimly put, an autopsy of what happened that year. And so really it's a, it's a grade for the teacher and what the teacher did that year. So local districts had to come in and say, well, we actually need to give tests to know where students are during the school year. And so this whole system of benchmarking was created. So now you've got teachers, parents, and students who just feel pummeled with tests throughout the school year and at the end of the school year where we now have the opportunity under the uh, ESSA to actually stop all this, take a step back, and reevaluate what tests are necessary and how we're going to give them. 
and we should have less tests, and they should be tests that actually help teachers help students. Uh, my opponent uh, probably is going to say something that sounds a lot like this. The problem is she's been saying it for years. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. And Domecast is back with Headliner of the Week. Uh, Colin, who's your Headliner of the Week? Well, I'm going with the Bone Brothers Flamin' Barbecue food truck, uh, which is not actually a real food truck. It was a spoof that was in town, I believe, earlier in September. Uh, went to a couple of bars in Raleigh uh, to uh, film a Daily Show segment on House Bill 2. Uh, the Daily Show wanted to spotlight the part of House Bill 2 that uh, could be construed as uh, allowing businesses to discriminate against uh, gay or transgender people because the uh, non-discrimination language in House Bill to protect people on, uh, from discrimination in public accommodations on things based on uh, things like sex and, and uh, race and religion, but not uh, sexual orientation and, and gender identity. So the argument is that uh, if you want to turn away someone who you perceive to be gay, you are within your, your legal rights to do so. So The Daily Show tried that out with the Bone Brothers Flame and Barbecue truck, uh, basically pulled in, uh, took orders from customers and, and told them that, uh, no, you, you look gay, um, I can't serve you, put up a little sign that said no gays allowed, uh, and just sort of recorded people's reactions to uh, having the experience of, of being discriminated against, uh, and, and particularly baffled were a number of, uh, of men, um, particularly white men, who are probably unused to uh, being uh, told off in, in that sort of manner. Um, and denied service. And denied service, yes, exactly. Um, so uh, that sort of formed the uh, pretense there. They eventually uh, explained to folks what the gag was, gave them free barbecue, um, and got a four-minute segment that made North Carolina look pretty ridiculous. And was everybody's reaction, no, that is wrong on principle? Uh, Most of them were just really angry that they had been called gay. Okay. Um, a couple of people pointed out that, that, yeah, that's discrimination, that's wrong, but most people were just, the, uh, their immediate reaction was to argue with them that, no, I'm, I'm not gay, I promise you, I'm not gay. All right, so uh, Bone Brothers, what's the full name? Bone Brothers Flamin' Barbecue, which <laughs> well, I'm sure was a deliberately chosen name for what they were trying yeah. to accomplish. Bone Brothers Flamin' Barbecue. Uh, by the way, people should probably get out and go to the, the real food trucks uh, uh, gathered around Bluegrass. Yeah, so Bone be Brothers will not be uh, <laughs> serving and denying people service at uh, IBMA this week, as far but as I know. there's plenty of barbecue. Yeah. yeah, there's a cook-off, I think, down towards the Performing Arts Center either today or tomorrow. Yes. Uh and you've been seeing a lot of, uh, and you've been seeing a lot of bluegrass. Yeah, so I've been uh, doing the the late night thing. I think I'm up to 22 bands now. I think I might have a problem. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we've got uh, Bone Brothers Flamin' Barbecue, uh, the Daily Show spoof in the mix for headliner of the week. Uh, Will, who's your headliner of the week? My headliner of the week is someone who does not condone you visiting barbecue food trucks. Um, my headliner is Pig on a Leash, which we, uh, you know, alluded to earlier in this segment uh, briefly when uh, when Eric Trump was in uh, Fuquay, Verena uh, earlier this week. He, uh, you know, was giving a speech on guns and found himself rudely interrupted by a member of the audience um, that turned out to be a pig on a leash. And um, funnily enough, this is kind of in, you know, not so uncommon down, uh, this is actually in the Harnett County part of uh, Fuquay. And I used to cover Fuquay before we started PolitiFact. And um, I remember actually 
there were several instances in which the police had to stop traffic on roads there to go and retrieve pet pigs that had gotten loose. One person in particular had a pig that was like 400 pounds. It was huge. That was always breaking out. Like the the police knew this pig and they had all sorts of funny names for it, like uh, Piggy Smalls, Notorious P.I.G., uh, Ham on the Lamb. So <laughs> those those were always fun stories for me to cover when I worked there. A nice little entertaining uh, <laughs> diversion from local <laughs> politics. And here it is, pigs coming up and diverting us from national politics. So, so you might have recognized this pig if you'd seen him at the shooting. Yeah, unfortunately, there. our reporter on the ground, Henry Gargan, did not get a photo of said pig on said leash. But, um, you know, maybe. You never know. And I know Eric Trump is a noted hunter and was at a shooting range. Did he have any? I wonder if he had any desire to uh, uh, take a little target practice at the pig on a leash. Well, you know, it's legal in North Carolina to hunt wild hogs. I'm not sure about hunting people's pets. <laughs> I, it's definitely rude. Oh, I hope Notorious Pig survived the, his trip to the shooting range. I don't know why someone took him to the shooting range, but yeah, his namesake um, didn't have good luck with guns. But hopefully. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully Piggy Smalls has better luck than Piggy Smalls. <laughs> All right. All right. So we've got uh, the pig on a leash uh, in, the hat, in the hat for uh, uh, headliner of the week. And we've got Bone Brothers Flaming Barbecue as well. This is a really creative uh, – <laughs> Creative headliner of the week segment. Lynn, you're going to have to be very. Uh, yeah, I'm going to pick a person, to, Hal Dull. Um, I'm going to pick a writer, editor, and columnist with uh, the Insider newsletter, Pat Gannon. Um, sorry, Pat's not here today. He used to be a regular on the Dome cast, but uh, you know him as a wonderful reporter and uh, all around great guy. He uh, has his last day at the Insider today. He's moving on to be the spokesman for the State Board of Education. So you'll, you might, may see uh, Pat's name. Elections. Uh, I'm sorry, State Board of Elections. Um, uh, he, you may see Pat's name um, uh, in uh, the text of stories, uh, no longer um, in a byline. But, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll say, Pat, uh, farewell, Pat. If it's a particularly crazy election, which certainly seems to be shaping up to be one, then... Yeah, he he uh, has be... his fingers crossed that everything goes smoothly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, as as wacky as the other two were, I think I really have to go with uh, Pat. We are going to miss him and uh, just wish him the, the best of luck at, at the elections board. Uh, so Pat Gannon is your headliner of the week this week. Uh, thanks, Pat. Good luck. And uh, we'll see everybody next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.